This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. From WMPG, this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and today we continue our series on PTSD among women who have served in the military. So far in this series, we've heard from women who have suffered sexual assault in the military. They've told painful stories of facing retaliation when they sought medical care or asked for help after being raped. They were shunned and made to feel like they were the problem. We've also spoken to two clinicians who care for women veterans, one focused on mental health and one focused on women's physical health needs and whether they've been addressed at the VA. Today we'll be looking at PTSD among women who've been in combat situations. While the ban on women in combat was officially lifted in January of 2013, women have been deployed overseas for decades and have often found themselves in the midst of combat. Women currently make up 8% of the total veteran population and 14.6% of the active duty military. Yet in the news, we still rarely hear about combat-related PTSD among veterans that includes women's stories or women's experiences. Miosha Thomas served 10 years active duty in the United States Navy before she was injured in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. She was honorably discharged and medically retired from military service due to her extensive injuries and sent home in 2010. She is currently the founder and CEO of One Savvy Veteran, a nonprofit organization geared to serving women veterans. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Miosha. Thank you so much for having me. What inspired you to join the Navy in 2000? I grew up in a very impoverished neighborhood in Chicago. Um, I knew I wanted something more, but even though I went to good schools, the scholarships weren't coming in. My mom was working on her Ph.D. at the time, and she's still paying student loans. Um, So I saw that life, and I knew I didn't want the debt. That was my way out. So... I went straight. I joined the Navy at 17. I had to graduate early from high school in order to go to boot camp by May. So I didn't go to prom. I didn't go to my graduation. All my friends were in pretty dresses at this time, and I'm in the dirt being yelled at. So during that moment, I was regretting it. (laughs) But um, then I wound up going to uh, my technical school to teach me my job in the military. I scored really high on the tests, and so I had lots of choices, and I wound up choosing military intelligence. So you were trained in military intelligence, and I know that you went to Italy. Was that, tell me, if you're able to, tell me what you were doing there. So my job, I was attached to a helicopter squadron. My job was to download top-secret message traffic, Um, So the helos um, had information on targets and where to go uh, for rescue missions and things like that. I also had to load top secret codes into the helo called Identify Friend or Foe. So they pretty much wouldn't get shot down. And when you say helo, is that short for helicopter? Yes. And are you close to the helicopters? Are you in some sort of remote location at some computer? Like, Just help me picture where you are. I am actually on the flight deck. So imagine almost like an airport, but full of helicopters um, in a room right there. I walk outside the room. There are the helicopters for me to load. So you can imagine it was extremely loud all the time. 
And so I understand that the first really difficult experience that you had in the military uh, happened there. Can you tell me the story of what happened? Sure. While in Italy, um, there was a helicopter crash. And the way this day started, it started as any other day. You know, it was going to be a flight. They needed their top secret codes. I went out to the helos. Um, I loaded the top secret codes to identify friend or foe. I wished them a safe flight. I was always the last person that the pilot saw because I was the last person to load the codes. Um, you know, we kind of do like a salute for a safe flight and they start up the engines and I always used to stand back and kind of watch the helos take off. And then I would go back to my office. While in my office, a couple of hours later, we get a call that there's been a helicopter crash. It just so happened to be a helicopter that one of my good friends was on. And he was my age. So because it was top secret codes and equipment on the helicopter, it was my job to go to the scene of the crash to recover um, so nothing was left behind for um, the enemy. So we're transported to the scene of the crash. I step off the bus, and on one side is the burning helo, and, you know, the um, Italians and Americans are trying to put out the fire. Then I put on a mask and put on gloves, and I have to canvas this field um, looking for pieces of equipment. But I'm also seeing body parts. But it's not my job to recover the body parts. In my mind, I realized that these are the body parts of my shipmates. And one of these bodies, once they piece it together, will be my friend. But you kind of have to tuck that away because my job and my mission right now is to find the equipment. That smell... The burning bodies and the burning metal, I'll never forget that smell as long as I live. Um, it's a smell that I still struggle with. There were times where, you know, I'll be, I'm home, I'm out the military, this is years later, and I'll wake up to that smell. It's so powerful that you think something is burning. I would you know, check the stove. I would look out the window to see if there's a fire on the block. One time I got my whole family out the house because it was so strong that I actually thought that something was burning. Mm. It took a while to realize that it was just in my head. You know, I, I treat a lot of people with PTSD and we often talk about intrusive memories, whether, you know, they're flashbacks or nightmares or just images that come. And often a smell that's existing in the world triggers those things, triggers the flashbacks and the memories. But I haven't heard before about the smell itself kind of haunting you, like the smell itself coming back to you. Uh, it sounds so difficult because the smell is such a visceral, it goes so deep in us, you know, our re reaction to it is so visceral. Do you find that over time that happens less? I would say no. I didn't start experiencing the smell or the memories of it until I actually got out the military. Mm. 
you know, in the military, like I said, you just kind of pack it away. You were just doing your job, kind of pack it away. And the command brought in grief counselors and, you know, but we didn't talk about it after that. No one went to see the counselor. We just sort of packed it away. Um, and then years go on. You know, this is my first duty station. I've had many more duty stations after that. And you just don't think about it until you come home and you're left with your thoughts. Is that standard practice for a command to bring in a grief counselor when there's been a loss like that? Yes. Normally in an accident, sometimes it's all all enlisted or all officers. This was a mix. So no matter what rank you were, you felt it. And I'm struck by you saying, you know, and nobody went to see the grief counselor. Like, is there a certain stigma to going to see the grief counselor? It actually is. Um, in the military, emotion can be a sign of weakness because it can cloud your judgment. And when your judgment is clouded, that can affect the mission and cost even more lives. So you you just kind of tuck it away. You know, it was okay to be sad, but it was not okay to be emotionally affected by your sadness. It's so ironic, right? What I just heard you say was it's okay to be sad, but it's not okay to be emotionally affected by that sadness. As if those are really different things, you know? Um, and I, I'm guessing that they brought in a grief counselor actually in the service of not, not so you'd be more sad, but actually to help you get through it. But it sounds like there was very little faith that it would actually do that. You can't train us for weeks and years not to deal with our emotions and then bring someone in to deal with our emotions. What kind of training are you talking about? How did they do that? Well, I remember um, in boot camp, your very first introduction to this military life and military world, they take away your emotions. Um, if you're injured, you're told to suck it up, you know, don't feel the pain. Um, if you feel fear, I remember in the Navy, I knew how to swim, but I didn't know how to dive. And they take you up on this huge tower and they tell you to jump. And if you don't jump, you get pushed. And I remember the first time I didn't jump because I was afraid. So there's another emotion. I, I felt fear. And I was punished for feeling fear. You know, I was pushed. And then you are you get out, you're ridiculed for being pushed, and then you have to do it again until you jump on your own. And it took like three times of me being pushed and ridiculed for me to finally be like, you know what, I'm just not going to feel the fear and I'm just going to jump. I'm going to tuck that emotion of fear away and jump. Even being sad of being away from home. It was my first time. I'm an only child. It was my first time away from my mom and my family. Um, if they hear you crying or whimpering or um, if you get too many letters or packages, um, you know, uh, my mom didn't hear from me for like two weeks and she showed up at boot camp. And <laughs> I, I was the only recruit that got a chance to see their parent because my mom made such a fuss. She, <laughs> she thought the military did something to me. Um, but after that, you know, that's love. But after that, you know, I was tortured for, I was a mama's girl. I was do it for your mama, everything. I was tortured because someone loved me. 
enough to come to boot camp. So you, you don't want that. You you just want to kind of blend in. You just kind of want to be a part of the group and tuck everything away. No pain, no love, no no hurt, no sadness, no fear. What was the impact on you to, to be able to suppress your emotions to that degree? When I did come home, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't even know to to put a label on it like this is anger or this is hurt you don't know how to deal with it and not dealing with it is the only way you know how to deal with whatever these emotions are so you try to tuck it away but it's a little bit harder in the civilian world to do that because you know there's no mission to keep you occupied you know, there's, there's a lot of downtime in the civilian world. And in that downtime down is where the darkness of your emotions sort of creep in. And in the years since 2010, do you feel like you have been able to reclaim your ability to both recognize and feel those emotions? Not completely. Um while in the military, you know, I I had to um, spend a lot of time away from my daughter. So dealing with motherhood and all that goes into that, I actually went to school for two years um, and sat in early childhood education classes just so I could learn about that emotion and what children go through so I can understand motherhood. It it was nothing that was innate anymore. I had to be taught. Even processing my anger or, you know, my sadness, someone else had to help me and teach me coping skills for that. It's taken away from you. It's striking, isn't it? Because the ability to be with our feelings is so much a part of what relationships are about. You know, when you talk about mothering, like being with your child's feelings, children's feelings are so strong. Um, So there's this interplay between uh, being with feelings and being with each other, really. That's that inability to have emotions, to really be an emotionless mother affected my relationship with my oldest daughter. Um, She didn't want to live with me. The first time I left her uh, to deploy, she was three months. Now the military has a policy where they won't deploy a mother until like a year. But I didn't have that at the time. I was gone. I came back. She was one year old and she didn't even know who I was. And then I would get her back and then I would deploy again. Um for another year or a couple of months. And it was constantly a back and forth. For 10 years while I was in the military, I just was back and forth, back and forth. And when I got injured, you know, I couldn't walk. So I I definitely couldn't take care of a four-year-old. So I told mom, and she was afraid of me. I was in in the hospital bed. Um, I couldn't walk. I was bandaged. I had tubes in me. Um, She told my mom that I looked like a mummy. And she was scared. I looked like a monster to her. So I just told my mom, don't bring her back. 
you know, you guys go home, don't bring her back until I'm able to take care of her. And that was four years later. So you have a baby. She's three months old. So she's an infant. I mean, really so young. And you get deployed. And at that point, you didn't have any recourse. Like you just had to go. Or get kicked out. And you're, she stayed with your mom. Your mom became the caregiver? Yes. Uh-huh. And at that time, you hadn't studied early childhood education yet, so you probably didn't know about attachment and the impact on your child to have that separation. Right. I understand now that the reason why we aren't close or why she, when I came home and I reached for her, why she pulled back and she, she was like tugging on my mom. Um, to pick her up and what she called my mom mom um i didn't i i get it now first year of life is important thanks to the classes so now that i have a second daughter a four-year-old i call her my civilian baby um, she was born since i've been out of the military I, i'm more equipped to understand you know when my oldest daughter would cry over a toy or something broke. You know, I was very militant, you know. You don't break equipment in the military. So to me, her toy was like equipment. You know, you're not being responsible. You know, if you break equipment, something could happen. Someone could die. In the military, whatever you do wrong always ends in the person's death somehow is how we're trained. Um, So I understand why she didn't want to live with such a militant mother. I see. So here you are. You've got 10 years of intense socialization teaching you that you break something. This is very serious. So then you have a child break something, which, of course, is a very common event. But your reaction to it is as if it was catastrophic, as if it was someone's survival. Exactly. Or if she leaves something or if she cries, why are you crying? You know, tuck that away, you know, suck that up. Those were the lessons that I would give her anytime I had her. If I had a moment to actually have my daughter with me for any length of time, you know, those, that's what I was teaching her because that's all I knew. I went in at 17. You know, my whole adult thinking is militant. And I'm thinking those are core values, positive things that I'm sharing with her. But she didn't sign up for that. Right, exactly. She didn't have a choice. So I know you're familiar with this term moral injury, which is this feeling of having violated your own moral code, you know, having done something, been required to do something that went against your own sense of what's right, especially in in the way you treat another person. And is that a way that you think about this now, that you were required to do something that ended up hurting your own child? Yes, I always say I, you know, so much focus is on the veteran and, you know, what they went through. But I don't know what type of trauma that I caused my daughter. She's 14 now. She's a teenager. She's very much withdrawn. I don't know if this is just teenage land, but compared to her peers, you know, she's she just is very organized and very... Um, People say these are wonderful qualities, but she's she's almost militant. She likes to have her combat boots. She's very neat and organized. She's 
a very quiet child, especially compared to her younger sister. She doesn't speak unless spoken to. You know, I tell her to do something. She follows orders um, to a T. You know, she's a a good child, good grades and things like that. But she doesn't almost make mistakes now. She's afraid to make mistakes. And, you know, as a child, this is the time to make mistakes. This is the time to... I know that now thanks to the classes, but <laughs> this is the time to make mistakes. This is the time to try things. And she's very much reserved. Even how her posture, she's a very reserved child compared to her peers and even her, her younger sister. When you say even her posture, what do you mean? If we walk together, sometimes we walk in sync, almost as if we're marching in formation. Or the way she stands with her hands to her side. It's almost as if I created a little soldier. I was going to say, it sounds like she's trying so hard to be the good military girl that she imagines you might have wanted. And I feel so bad for her if that's the case. Because I never wanted that. I just didn't know any other way to be a a person, let alone a mother. So here you are fearing that your decisions about what was right for your life had this unintended, very painful consequence for your daughter. How do you think about that? How do you think about what that impact was? Well, for me, it all starts because... Like I said, I'm an only child, very much a mama's girl. My mom never left me. You know, society teaches us mothers aren't supposed to leave. Mothers are supposed to be there. Your parents are supposed to be there. But your mothers are held to almost like a higher standard sometimes in society. Um, And I grew up seeing that. A mother who never left, a grandmother who never left a mother, a great-grandmother, who you know. And all of a sudden I leave. Thinking and, you know, you're told you're doing it for a higher purpose, but what's the consequences? The people um, who we love the most and we're saying we're doing this for, we're protecting, becomes collateral damage. They become the casualties of the war. In addition to the people that signed up and they didn't sign up there. And I, I guess, you know, those people who died in the helicopter crash, uh, a part of me says, well, that's what they signed up for. You know, that we, we knew that that's a consequence, occupational hazard, but our families, especially our children who are born into this, you don't have a choice. And I hate that I did that to her. And she'll never fully say, or maybe she just doesn't understand enough to say what that has done to her. Are you able to talk about it together? I've never talked to her about it. Because I don't want to know her answer. I mean, we'll talk about You know, remember that time I left or that birthday party I missed and things like that. 
um, the play, there is a play about my story, uh, about leaving my daughter. And she got an opportunity to see the play and she recognized which part was hers. But like a, a truly deep, deep conversation as to what that has done to her. Never. Um, she at one point told me that she did not feel like I abandoned her. But is she tucking away her emotions? It's almost like I can't totally trust her emotions because I raised a soldier. And I would love, you know, for me to hear that as a mother. Yes, that eases my conscience. But are you doing that because you knew it would? Right. You don't you don't know if she's saying that just to take care of you. Because that's what soldiers do. <laughs> so you said, I haven't had that conversation with her because I'm afraid of how she might answer. What is the thing you're afraid she might say? I'm afraid that she will say what I already know. That I was not there. That I did miss out. That I can never get back the time that was lost. It will forever be gone. Um, the relationship that I wanted with my first child, especially a daughter, you know, because my mom and I's relationship is so tight. I wanted that relationship for um, my daughter. And I'm afraid that she'll say it'll never be that way because it can't. And I know that, but to hear her say that and her, the voice that, you know, that I gave birth to, to, to say, yeah, everything that you know to be true is true. That, that's my kryptonite. That's, she was a mission that I'll never complete. Do you have a sense that this is a not uncommon story, Miosha, that this happens frequently to women in the military? Absolutely. And I think no one thinks about military service from motherhood. We hear about the military spouse and the role that, you know, the, the military spouse has to play, you know, being the single mom or a single dad once their partner deploys. But what about the mothers that are actually in the military that are actually deploying and leaving? During one deployment, um, I was on a ship out to sea in the middle of the ocean. Um, like I said, I was military intelligence, so we controlled the phone lines, computers, anything communications we controlled. I was working the night watch, and we would sneak and use the captain's line to kind of call home just two or three minutes just to say we love our families we're okay we can't tell them where we are but we're alive we're okay we miss them we'll be home soon and this particular time um, I called home my daughter was three at the time just turned three and she was into Dora so I would tell her you know mommy's on Dora's boat you know I'm with Dora out to sea on Dora's boat 
And I called home and talked to my mom, told her I was okay. I just wanted to talk to my daughter right quick and let her know I loved her. She gets on the phone. I tell her, Mommy loves you. Mommy's on Dora's boat. She'll be home soon. Be a good girl. And I was about to hang up because if you don't stay within those two to three minutes, it kind of picks up on the bandwidth and it registers and people will know we were on the phone so everyone could get in trouble. My daughter said, but mommy, I want to talk to you. And I, I just froze because what do you do at that moment? It's a conflict. Being a mother in the military is a constant conflict of do I be a good soldier or do I be a good mother? Because I can't be both at the same time. Do I hang up on my baby who just wants a couple of more minutes to tell me about something that was important to her? And yes, she's three and what can be important to a three-year-old? Yes, that's our adult mind. But to her, it's everything. Or do I get everybody in my division in trouble? Um, and marks on our careers and and mess it up for their family. You know, it, it's a domino effect. But which way do you push the domino? What did you do? I stayed on the phone. And um, my other shipmates gave up their times with their families. I'm trying not to cry. Because in the military, we really do become each other's sort of surrogate families. And they sacrificed that time for me just so I could have a couple more minutes. I don't even remember what she talked about. <laughs> but I stayed on long enough to she felt comfortable with hanging up the phone. At least for that moment, I wasn't a bad mother. I got a chance to just be a mom and not a soldier. But, and I cried. Oh, I cried. I had to, I went into a corner of our division and just cried. And they left me alone, you know. That was one time I couldn't control the emotion because I was so touched that, you know, they would give up their time for me. And I was really touched that I got a chance to be a mom and see what that felt like just for a moment. Some kind of normalcy. Yosha, given what you've told me about how hard it is to reclaim your feelings, it just feels very moving to hear you, your tears. Does it feel to you now like in letting yourself grieve this and cry? Do you feel like that helps you heal? I know, I know it does. I know now because, like I've said, you know, therapy, talking to other people that, you know, it's okay to feel the emotion. It's okay to deal with the emotion because that's how you cope with it. That's how you even sometimes can move past it. But it's still a tug of war in me. You know, I have to tell myself it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel that because it's almost like a knot in my chest 
I can hear a part of me saying, suck that up. Suck that up. Right. You've got like the internal emotions police in your mind still still watching that. Miosha, you mentioned earlier that you were injured and that your daughter, you know, saw you in bed with all the bandages and was frightened. I want to come back to that because I really want to hear that story. But we're just out of time for today. So would you be able to stick around and record a second part of this interview? Absolutely. And while we close, we always end every show with resources. You mentioned that there's a play about you and your daughter. What is the name of that play? It's called Women at War by Riverdale Theater Ensemble. It's a compilation of many women veteran stories. And is that something that um, is available online? Like, is there a way for somebody to come and watch this? Currently, it's in Chicago and touring around Illinois and some of the Midwest, uh, but we're looking to tour it out. Um, there are a lot of different um, states that's actually putting on similar productions. Of there, people are starting to realize that um, listening to women veterans and allowing them to share their stories are um, key into our recovery. In many ways, that is the principle at the heart of this whole show, Miosha. So, uh, yeah, we'll put a link to some information about that on our website. If you like this show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And if you want to hear any of the other shows in this series on women veterans and PTSD, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.